Hey, hey, folks, I'm Dave. And Ruth. And welcome to So Many Books. So Little Time. Uh, today we will be continuing with our read of 1984 by George Orwell with, I believe, chapter 14 or chapter 6 of part 2. Yes. Cue the music. Hey, Rue, how you doing? Oh, good. Uh, mostly um, drinking tea, trying to stay calm. <laughs> as, as we're recording, summer is now technically over. It is March now. So, so you know, um, it's technically autumn, but yeah. here on the Gold Coast, at least, we really only have two seasons. Well, no, sort of, kind of. Summer we and have winter. Seasons, we have seasons interspersed with, with rain. That's what we have. <laughs> with storms. Because it's storm seasons. Yeah. Um, but, yes, it's, it's been interesting. Let's not talk about the weather again. Okay. No. But, no. but but it's, it's such a universal... You know, I was thinking about that the other day when... Um, yeah, when talking to people, I'm like, why do we always just open up with talking about the weather? It's it just something be- everything, everyone's affected by. It, it, and it's just so um, innocuous and inoffensive that it's a... It's a neutral topic. It's yeah. Good. Well, almost neutral topic. Almost. Yeah, neutral. if you start talking about the causes of the current weather, then that gets political. <laughs> well, not causes, but the, the climate. So the accumulation of weather responses and weather patterns and... Predictive current. Let's not go there. So um, um, we forgot to do this last week, but I'd like to ask this week again: uh, What are you reading? Uh, uh, lots of molecular genetics manuals right now. That's my thing, because I'm I'm about to resume teaching labs. Um, ah, so it's all preparing to yeah. impart wisdom. <laughs> wisdom um, knowledge i should say not wisdom oh well, yes no a lot of it is just making sure that i'm uh remembering what techniques they're going to be using specifically because ah. we use shortcuts in labs or different techniques so i need to know specifically what they're being to ask to apply um and preparing mentally um as to how to respond to some certain questions Oh, it's going to be fun. Like, why? A little bit of that. A little bit of, well, what about using this technique? I hear it's much more effective. And I'll be looking at them going, I'm glad that you've prepared for this class and looked things up. However, for the practicality of a laboratory group of 30-odd students, or in this case, we're, I don't even know. Uh, I think we're well, we're only... So two, it's two... Might be... Might be yes, yeah, just under 30. Students, no, thirty-four students in this particular group. Is that a large group? Um, it used they used to have bigger groups. L- luckily, mm. now they're doing smaller groups. We've got the funding allocated. Thank you, university, um, for allocating funding for smaller labs slightly. Um, but yeah, it, it gets a bit hectic when you've got forty odd people, um, trying to do fine-tuned experiments that are incredibly easily stuffed up. Uh, I mean, we're not expecting them to do everything perfectly, but we are expecting them to be able to apply the protocol. Competency. Some competency, yes, that would be great. Um, and hopefully not break any of the expensive equipment. That would be even better. You know, I, have, I still have a memory when I, um, I did some intro to film subjects uh, in my early 20s um, when some university uh, attempts did not go my way and I jumped back into something uh, sooner than I should have. But it was um, it was one of those uh, intro classes where this is how you use uh, a camera and lighting to shoot things. Yeah. And um, it was the it was the class where we were using lights. We were lighting uh, doing simple lighting and um you know the first thing he they said was um do not use your hands to touch the bulbs because the oil left by your fingerprints will heat up and the bulb will explode 
And what happens with all these other groups, I, I, I will be proud saying that I did things properly, but pretty much within five to 10 minutes, I heard three or four crashes. <laughs> and the- uh, They just wanted to know if it, the, they, they were serious or not. Well, the, the head of the um, class stopped us and had us pack everything away. And basically, we, because of those people, we forfeited our right to <laughs> play with the equipment as it were. Well, yeah. Yeah, makes sense. That's like, like blah blah blah. So, um, uh, blah. Sorry, brain is not working, and someone just tried to call me, so I had to fix phone that. off. Yeah, and I had to fix the phone call. Business luck. I'm recording. Leave me alone. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you, Dave. What are you reading? Okay, well, uh, that's not a loaded question at all. I, I asked her to ask me that before. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, I'm reading this book called The Calculating Stars, um, which has been very scary, but really uh, engrossing. Basically, it's like an alternate history. It, it starts in the 50s, mm. and the main character is she was a, um, a pilot in World War II, and she's married to a... a um, a rocket scientist, and she's quite good at mathematics herself. There, having a little getaway in the Poconos, when a meteorite destroys basically the entirety of the Eastern American seaboard, that would, uh, like that like would a three hundred mile impact. DC's gong, uh, New York is flooded. Everywhere has been hit by tidal waves because of the crash, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they get to safety. But then um, as he's uh, been in meeting after meeting with the what's left of the U.S. government, trying to prove to them that no Russia did not throw the meteorite at us um, because they're scared and not smart. Panicky. Yeah. Yeah, um, He asks her to do the math behind what's been happening to hopefully prove to them that there is no way Russia could have sent a meteorite at them. Yeah. She does the math and realizes that this is basically going to be an extinction event uh, because of the greenhouse effect. All the water vapor that was sent into the air by it hitting the ocean. You know, there's um, a point where she they show a graph to all the generals and the, what's the uptick? And she's like, oh, that is when the oceans begin to boil. So that's just the first part of the book. And basically now it's jumped ahead a couple years and she's working with mission control and they're successfully launching the first man into space and i think it's the idea because this um, apocalyptic scenario happened the world has gotten together and they're trying to get everyone off the planet as fast as possible Hmm. but um especially with the the dire situations um and the way it's all explained obviously there's there's quite a parallel to current uh the current climate change doomsday scenario well yes Yes, the fact that we're we've got a whole bunch of people who are quite aware of the science going uh this isn't great for life. Well just just yesterday maybe really depressed right before I was going to bed I was scrolling through Twitter which actually is my fault. I shouldn't be doing that right before bed. No. Um I should be scrolling Reddit where I can look at cute pictures of dogs and such things. Yes, yes. But um it was about the idea that we're killing off basically 50 to 90% of the life on our planet uh, in the foreseeable future. And it was the idea that... Um, By 2020, approximately six, was it 60 to 90% of biodiversity of species that will be permanently um, damaged. And, and yet it was just this idea, well, the tweet said, think of that. We have no proof that there is life anywhere else in the universe. So we're te- we're technically, as a species, okay with eradicating 50 to 90% of all the life we know in the universe. Yeah, it's not a very... That was a very depressing thing to read right before bread. It's an incredibly arrogant approach to, to, to life. Oh. Mm. But yes, we have a bunch of scary... Oh, yeah, I mean... Do I think that we're going to have a lot of significant effect? Yeah, because seriously. Um, Unless if, someone creates a miracle that can suck all the carbon out of the well, atmosphere. Well, it's not even the carbon. We've got, we'll have multiple greenhouse gas problems. There's a really cool invention someone's come up with, which is we have natural plants, yes, mm. but someone's come up with um, infusing chlorophyll into uh, like it's 
fabric as well as so they've created almost almost artificial leaves oh like wearable well no not wearable at this point but they're artificial leaves so that you can have artificial surfaces that engage in photosynthesis so like like hopefully in the future everyone will have solar panels everywhere maybe everyone could have these uh patches well it's around. yeah it improves air quality which means in certain places where pollution is a bit higher we have the possibility of enha- of improving things where um so, so it's i mean ultimately it's not well, uh, it's look, not what it's not a solution. I don't think we're going to be looking at a single solution. Mm. I think we need to look at concerted efforts. I mean, there's um, <laughs> there are people with more qualified um, and uh, more qualified and educational background uh, uh, on this topic, and they'll they'll tell you this is a case of I mean the the basic thing that everything everyone can do, yes, reduce carbon uh, burden. Carbon dioxide burden, carbon uh, carbon dioxide and monoxide, but carbon dioxide burden, uh, water vapor burden in our atmosphere. Those are two huge ones, um, but majority of which is industrial and or. Yes, it, it's more on like the the um, activism to engage political will to stop the major polluters to to have them change the way they do things. Another way to do it is hit them where it hurts, which is mass boycotting of everything which is not and if like it's not uh how do you put it will i i've always found in terms of boycotts people's wills are pretty weak and that's well, myself it's, it's included. not a will thing it's also a case of dependency you've got a lot of populations that are dependent on manufacture of certain goods yes um and then also people's livelihood often is Yes, the jobs. Then. Integrate. So we've got an economy that is dependent on these organizations. And these organizations are engaging in in uh, activities that are burdening our environment. And at the end of the day, all the environmental based physical problems, financial, like it, it, it's a it's a cycle. There's a the worse our climate gets, the more erratic our climate gets. We're not talking, oh, but it's so cold. Oh, but it's so warm. We're talking everything, like all these extreme differences, the fact that it's changing our plant life, our animal life and the everything. Strong, or, or the big, it impacts our health as well. The big thing for me, uh, this is a, a science fiction story, but um, it really affected me. So there's this wonderful puzzle game called the Talos Principle, which you play a, um, an AI inside a computer construct, and there's a voice of God telling you to solve puzzles to prove yourself. Mm. Now, it turns out that this entire construct contains the entirety of human knowledge, um, and you can access kind of, you know, uh, data cubes that tell you what's happened, like um, emails left by the people who created this construct. It turns out that... Um, there was a giant virus that was wiping out all of humanity. Mm. So they got together and goes, well, maybe maybe we in some form can live on through artificial intelligence. So let's create this giant thing. Now, it turns out what caused this virus was global warming. What, what, yeah. what, well, what happened was the permafrost in Russia finally melted. And which, what was trapped in there? What was trapped in there? Some super virus from millions of years in the past that we had no uh, defense and against. And that is a thing that is not, that's not a wrong fear. That is actually a very valid fear. There's a lot of ancient viruses and bacteria that are getting released from the permafrost, which is not great. Um, and we haven't had immunity against these things for like hundreds of generations. There is no way. Like if something, as soon as that hits a population, we are in big trouble. Yeah. Um, it's not like a miracle cure can just be come out of nowhere. I mean, we have a, a little bit of a fighting chance because in theory, our nutrition isn't bad. By the way, don't get me started on the whole, oh, but our ancestors had better nutrition. No, no, they didn't. In fact, we, we won't get, no, no, we won't get you started. Evidence. No, no, there's, Rue, I'm going to start. I'm Rue, just going to say there's evidence. <laughs> there's a lot of evidence to counter that concept. Uh, I, I kind of want to say into what we're all here for, 1984. See, we may be overly negative about our current 
situation. But, you know, uh, maybe, maybe there's a bit of positive that we don't have it as bad as the people in this novel. But yeah. well, we have not, our own... It's not negative. I think what it is is these challenges that we're being faced with really need us to reprioritize as a species like it's not mm. it's not a case of oh but it's their fault oh but it's their fault oh but they need to do something oh but they need to do something if you have a livelihood and i mean this is i'm not blaming a person for getting a job if your livelihood is dependent on a corporation because they essentially control everything and yet we're in a political system that is supportive of these organizations. Are bought by these organizations. Or, I mean, that's my key side word is that essentially they're bought. That, that we're the ones who are voting, voting in, as a population, you have the right to vote. You're voting in those political movements with, that are essentially bought by organizations upon which you depend for your livelihood but have no regulation, no control, and are continuing to adversely contribute. So if your priority in life is di dictated to you by an economy that treats you as... Um, a cog in the machine? cog in the machine, or is, treats you as cannon fodder in, in terms of you are only worth what you contribute to the organization or to the society versus... A human life has a myriad of ways of contributing to society, and and, and, and we don't we don't know how. And what you've said right there, the idea of being a cog in the machine and having no value as an individual—that's exactly what the party has created. Yeah, you don't. I mean, yeah, you don't want to have the extreme of individualism being the the end all and be all either, because that, then you're not going to have a sense of community and you're not going to have mm -hmm. a sense of well it doesn't matter if, because if i die it doesn't really matter if there's global warming in the next generation that's not my problem that's their problem no Oof. um yes yeah, so that's when you take individualism and you take it to another extreme so you don't want extreme individualism you want to have individual capacity and growth and everything but at the same time autonomy yeah you want autonomy but you don't want to have um Essentially, the entire society dictated by corporate determination. Like you you don't want to be living for someone else. No, okay, living for someone else can have different meanings, but you don't want to be your existence to be only measured by by what value, financial, economic value that you contribute to the machine, because right. that's just a very limited view of what oh, the okay. capacity of an individual is. So let me ask you about this. Um, in 1984, the party members don't seem to technically be contributing economic value to the party through their jobs. Do you think it's more the, almost the self-sustaining power yeah. of the party? How every, yeah. every job yeah. in there is meant to reinforce the ideals of the party. We we are the same way we look at the party and the same way we look at this. We live in a an economy or we live in a world where the economic structures that currently exist dictate the way that we are forced to live. However, we're not actually limited if we choose to bypass the economic structures. In other words, barter, trade, those things, with exception of those places where legislation comes in, like, for example, if there's legal restrictions on um, who can trade what kind of foods and the, the safety restrictions, say you apply all the safety restrictions required to make your own soap. Australia actually has quite a few regulations on soap. And instead of selling your soap for pure financial gain, you, you cover the cost in terms of you, you figure out a way to not, but you can even drop that entirely. Once you've invested in your product, trade it for something you need. Say you need you trade three bars of soap for um, three loaves of bread. Which they can't do in the party. They can't do that in the party, but although they try, they do. They mention, uh, do you have a razor? Do you have a razor? Like, they're not trading, though. They're asking. They're asking. Yeah, but who knows? They might have... We don't know. We can't expand on what, although what they do. there must be some form of economy because, <laughs> like... 
party members, Winston included, go and buy things from yeah. the proles who they do have an economy. Yeah. They work so for money. The difference is that these guys probably have a standard pay. So it doesn't, the problem is that we're, we're I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be a revolutionary and say, oh, let's get rid of money. There's going to be some sort of financial system. That's fine. But if your existence is completely and totally de- like determined by an economy that we already know does not have is not founded on principles that are sustainable. Well, With Adam Smith's uh, invisible hand, you know, the principles of economy. Someone sat down and one of the fathers of the modern economy. Okay, I, I was going to say, well, and the thing about our current economy, at least in uh, like the US and Australia, is it's it's no longer based on gold or anything tangible. It's based on debt. It's yeah, pretty it much debt. entirely abstract. Yeah, it's well. And that's that's very, very much like the founding fathers of economy. Um, so our modern economy is based on the fact that when you run out of resources, you go and you conquer another country or another territory or whatever, and you take their take find new resources, find fresh resources, find you know supply resupply. The English Empire in a nutshell. Actually, pretty much. That's the the foundation of modern econ- economic principles. A lot of it is influenced by how the British Empire worked. And guess what? There isn't any, like, there are places you could try and conquer. Absolutely. But when you've run out of places and territories that you can exploit and strip of their resources, the economic principles do not work. Like, there is there is no supplying. Oh, so, so it's basically those principles that were founded don't have any answer for um when growth gets to an extreme well they don't have an answer essentially they the 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 expression is the invisible hand that it's going to somehow the hand of the market yeah yeah, but that in i mean if you boil it down to it this is my really weird and weird opinion but it's assuming that those who need will be given or though the economy as a machine will constantly be sustained by reality whereas as as opposed to looking at reality and adapting to the circumstances it doesn't make sense like there's there's no logic behind it a lot of very strange the philosophy behind it is very shaky it's something i well I'd have to read up because that made little sense to me. Well, no, it doesn't make any sense because it is all about, oh, we've run out. Let's go out and conquer a new territory. Uh, um, maybe we should move on yeah. to... Uh, so now let's go to a place where, yeah, I, I think their system is essentially what happens when you... Um, was it this you know the snake eating the tail mm-hmm. a robust thank you a robust that it sounds like it like it's sustaining itself it's conveyor belt <laughs> it's sustaining itself like that's it's but it's not sustainable but they're creating a well, system well because if the snake's eating its tail eventually it's gonna get to a point where it can't eat anymore yeah it's stuck but that's the thing like we're talking about um we were so last time we were talking about the different generations Mm -hmm. they are refining a system it doesn't matter how many people get crushed in the system as long as there's enough of them to replace the cogs yes and and they seem to keep they seem to keep trying to perfect the system, which is what Newspeak is, the new dictionaries yeah. and everything. And I mean, all they need to do is constantly be in, in war with at least one area, area, be it East Asia or Eurasia or East Asia or Eurasia, or wherever they're at war with. Which is probably for resources. That is. As, as, as much as it is to maintain an enemy for the people. It's an enemy for the people to get, be distracted by, but at the same time, they, hmm, we've run out of tea. Our tea stock's a bit low. Okay, let's switch switch who we're fighting now. Let's go fight these guys with their stock. Now, do you, here's a question. Do you think, obviously, Oceania exists. This is uh, uh, um, yeah. a, a, a group of countries which seem to be like North America and England and maybe some more of Europe. I think Oceania would be also, excuse me, oh, Australia. I think we're talking about the old allies. Okay. Um, do you think East Asia and Eurasia are actual other groups of nation states, or do you think they've been giving these names to just uh, 
I'm sure who, who they choose to fight. Ultimately, does it matter? It doesn't matter. I'm just curious. It, uh, if it, if they are nations, if they are nation groups, that's their uh, alliance. That's their alliances. That's their it, thing. It seems weird how like the world is now divided into three powers that in, uh, in, uh, inhabit everything. You say this, and yet, have you seen? The number of corporations who essentially own and run the world? Isn't about... It's about seven, isn't it? Which I laugh at because that was the That's number scary. of mega corporations that were in Shadowrun that ran the world. <laughs> yeah, I think someone took that one too hard too much. But yeah, like it's a very small number of actual organizations that own other organizations that yeah. own other... Yeah, it's... it's um, the historian or an uh, economist... Uh, economist. economist, thank you. I just went into my German mode. Economist would know best, uh, or if they're well versed on this. But yeah, the, it, it essentially, I'm not that surprised if it was. It, it doesn't shock me because I mean, also look at the history. Look at Russia. What the USSR used to be. Look how huge it used to be. That is true. It used to hold span a span a lot of Asia, and a, a lot of uh, Europe, really. Yeah. Um, in in um, uh, War and Peace, which I finally finished last week, uh, they talk about how um, you know Poland is under their control at that point in time. Yeah, yeah. Poland was. Yeah, so, so yeah, I, I mean, I lived in Germany back when Poland was part of the USSR, and so. Mm, mm. Um, but same with uh, everything. I yeah, mean, a, a large group of. The DDR and all that. It was, it was all. And and when you, I guess, when you think today about um, the areas of the world that America has a military presence in. Well, no, America has official colonies. America is now. Well, yes, they they do have official America colonies. continued. The, sorry, America. We shouldn't say America because it's the U.S. It's the U.S. The U.S. have a lot of territories. Have a lot of colonies. Have a lot of. Um, areas that are essentially the things that they were annoyed at King George for doing back in the day that led to the establishment of the independent United States of America guess what well they're an empire and I think every empire probably follows a similar template every even if the details change yeah I mean uh, there's been historically there's been so many empires and all of them have had conquest and I think some have been been a little less um, nasty about it. I mean, the Sri Lankan Empire spanned huge areas of of this the world back back when it was a thing. Um, not so much now. It's a little bit more restricted now. It's a um, very small country, from what I understand. Yes, um, but the point is, it, it still it, exists. <laughs> it used to be a massive empire, and uh, and the same with a lot of regions. I mean, the Persian Empire was massive. Ottoman mm. Empire, massive. All these places. Yeah. Rome in its uh, height. Rome, the, uh, the Roman Empire, yes, was very, very large. Point is, um, it's not that unreasonable to expect uh, a region. That's true. And I guess po- post-World War II, which is the spirit in which this book is written, <laughs> yeah. you know, the idea of um, the Allies and Axis kind of... It was almost like the world was cut into two sides during Three. that war. Three. You had Japan as well. Japan had their Well, Japan was part of the Axis. Yes and no. America titled it the Axis. These were independent. I mean, they had some... Qu- I thought they had like a non-aggression treaty with Germany. They had some agreements, but in reality... Uh, I mean, we don't know. Shoulda, coulda, woulda. We have no idea what would have happened. But as soon as one of them... But you can't have two governments or two groups who believe that they are the superior race. Oh, no. Eventually, that would have uh, broken down if they were allowed exactly. to keep expanding. Exactly. Yeah. So reality is that you would have had... So there would have been three, uh, roughly, three dis- like groups that would be relatively distinct in their ideology... Um, and all three groups believed that they were the superior um, grouping. I mean, 
yes, the allies in theory didn't believe that they were superior, but they did believe that they were superior to the Japanese and, and the Germans. Not necessarily on a racial basis, but in terms of other things, yes. I mean, they had issues even within their own countries. Yeah, there there is uh, kind of a frightening, uh, I don't know if it's a video or a picture um, of before the U.S. entered the war of like 20,000 uh, gathering in New York for a Nazi convention. Yeah, so you've got things like that. So it's not that surprising an uh, ideology. And you've got also the way that the, I'm sorry, Japanese internment camps. Yes. Um, the German population was actually, segre- it was, they, they had a lot of problems. Australia had a lot of problems with their, their German uh, members. So, um... We've been having a wonderful conversation, and I just realized we're about 30 minutes in. Yeah. Now, I know those of you that are here to listen to 1984 have probably been screaming at us or just keep skipping ahead and wondering, when are they going to start reading? But I've been coming, as I'm editing these, I'm coming around that, to the idea that the discussion is kind of more valuable than the reading itself. Like, even at the start, we said... Don't read along with us because we will be interrupting the read to discuss things. And we will waffle because that is what I do. Well, both. I mean, at any time I could say, Rue, on track. But I love these discussions. We enjoy waffling. It is, is, we don't get to do it that much. So this is our waffle time. We're sharing our waffles with you. And if you're... Belgian style. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Waffles. And look, if, if if this is really annoying you, you don't have to listen. It's all good. We're not going to be offended. So, but with that said, why don't we start reading? Because yes. I think um, I think this might be the chapter when things big, big things happen. Things go to shit. I, I think this is the hate week chapter. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. So, um, actually, those of you who know 1984 probably understand how there's been a couple things I've been waiting for to gauge Rube's reaction of, and Hate Week is one of them. Ugh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I know she's really looking forward to it. Uh, Remember the first time, um, I think it was chapter one or two, geez. they mentioned how they were preparing for Hate Week, and you just went, wait, 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 Hate Week? <laughs> yeah, I did not process that very well. <laughs> Uh, okay. And so, then after a thorough explanation of what the two minutes hate was, you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you're like, no, no. Okay. Now, okay. let's get going. It had happened at last. The expected message had come. All his life, it seemed to him, he had been waiting for this to happen. He was walking down the long corridor at the ministry, and he was almost at the spot where Julia had slipped the note into his hand when he became aware that someone larger than himself was walking just behind him. The person, whoever it was, gave a small cough, evidently as a prelude to speaking. Winston stopped abruptly and turned. It was O'Brien. At last they were face to face, and it seemed that his only impulse was to run away. His heart bounded violently. He would have been incapable of speaking. O'Brien, however, had continued forward in the same movement, laying a friendly hand for a moment on Winston's arm, so that the two of them were walking side by side. He began speaking with that peculiar grave courtesy that differentiated him from the majority of inner party members. I had been hoping for an opportunity of talking to you, he said. I was reading one of your Newspeak articles in the Times the other day. You take a scholarly interest in Newspeak, I believe. Winston had recovered part of his self-possession. Hardly scholarly, he said. I'm only an amateur. It's not my subject. I've never had anything to do with the actual construction of the language. But you write it very elegantly, said O'Brien. That is not only my own opinion. I was talking recently to a friend of yours who is certainly an expert. His name has slipped my memory for the moment. Again, Winston's heart stirred painfully. It was inconceivable that this was anything other than a reference to Syme. But Syme was not only dead, he was abolished, an unperson. Any identifiable reference to him would have been mortally dangerous. O'Brien's remark must obviously have been intended as a signal, a code word. By sharing a small act of thought crime, he had turned the two of them into accomplices. They had continued to stroll slowly down the corridor, but now O'Brien halted. With the curious, disarming friendliness that he always managed to put into the gesture, he resettled his spectacles on his nose. Then he went on. 
What I had really intended to say was that in your article, I noticed you had used two words which have become obsolete, but they have only become so very recently. Have you seen the 10th edition of the Newspeak Dictionary? No, said Winston. I didn't think it had been issued yet. We are still using the 9th in the records department. The 10th edition is not due to appear for some months, I believe, but a few advanced copies have been circulated. I have one myself. It might interest you to look at it, perhaps. Very much so, said Winston, immediately seeing where this tended. Some of the new developments are most ingenious. The reduction in the number of verbs. That is the point that will appeal to you, I think. Let me see. Shall I send a messenger to you at the dictionary? But I am afraid I invariably forget anything of that kind. Perhaps you could pick it up at my flat at some time that suited you. Wait, let me give you my address. They were standing in front of a telescreen. Somewhat absentmindedly, O'Brien felt two of his pockets and then produced a small leather-covered notebook and a gold ink pencil. Immediately beneath the telescreen, in such a position that anyone who was watching at the other end of the instrument could read what he was writing, he scribbled an address, tore out the page, and handed it to Winston. I am usually at home in the evenings, he said. If not, my servant will give you the dictionary. Yep. Huge difference between inner party members and the general party members. He has a servant. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And he didn't seem to fear the telescreen at all. Nope. He was gone, leaving Winston holding the scrap of paper, which this time there was no need to conceal. Nevertheless, he carefully memorized what was written on it and some hours later dropped it into the memory hole, along with a mass of other papers. They had been talking to one another for a couple of minutes at the most. There was only one meaning that the episode could possibly have. It had been contrived as a way of letting Winston know O'Brien's address. This was necessary because except by... (laughs) What's wrong, Ruth? I have a bad feeling. (laughs) This was necessary because except by direct inquiry, it was never possible to discover where anyone lived. There were no directories of any kind. If you ever want to see me, this is where I can be found, was what O'Brien had been saying to him. Perhaps there would even be a message concealed somewhere in the dictionary. But at any rate, one thing was certain. The conspiracy that he had dreamed of did exist, and he had reached the outer edges of it. Oh, no. (laughs) Vincent, you're reading too much into this. Sometimes a dictionary is just a dictionary. Yeah. He knew that sooner or later he would obey O'Brien's summons. Perhaps tomorrow, perhaps after a long delay, he was not certain. What was happening was only the working out of a process that had started years ago. The first step had been a secret, involuntary thought. The second had been the opening of the diary. He had moved from thoughts to words, and now from words to actions. The last step was something that would happen in the ministry of love. He had accepted it. The end was contained in the beginning. But it was frightening, or more exactly, it was like a foretaste of death, like being a little less alive. Even while he was speaking to O'Brien, when the meaning of the words had sunk in, a chilly, shuddering feeling had taken possession of his body. He had the sensation of stepping into the dampness of a grave, and was not much better because he had always known that the grave was there and waiting for him. Yeah, so reality has confronted him. We were discussing about this last time, like, they they know they're going to die. And so they just kind of became careless. But now he's because he knows death is coming he's looking at this and he's interpreting things the way he needs to interpret them to cope i think with that i do not think mm. or or maybe he maybe it's a, a amount of hope as well he's like if the revolution exists remember he always thought o'brien might be part of the subversive revolution. yeah um so, and because he's an inner party member, he has the power, and maybe he's not watched like the outer party is. Yeah, so maybe he's like, maybe my death will mean something. Yeah, baby, no. I do not have a good feeling about O'Brien, just because the way he's done it, the way he's so comfortable with the telescreen. He knows what's going on. <laughs> he knows exactly what he's doing. <sighs> yeah. Well, um, that was a very short chapter, and this next one is very short as well, so, okay, so shall go. we continue? Let's go. Okay. Winston had woken up with his eyes full of tears. Julia rolled sleepily against him, murmuring something that might have been, What's the matter? I dreamt, he began, and stopped short. It was too complex to be put into words. There was the dream itself, 
and there was a memory connected with it that had swum into his mind in the few seconds after waking. He lay back with his eyes shut, still sodden in the atmosphere of the dream. It was a vast, luminous dream in which his whole life seemed to stretch out before him like a landscape or a summer evening after rain. It had all occurred inside the glass paperweight, but the surface of the glass was the dome of the sky. Inside the dome, everything was flooded with clear, soft light in which one could see into interminable distances. The dream had also been comprehended by, indeed, in some sense it had consisted in, a gesture of the arm made by his mother, and made again thirty years later by the Jewish woman he had seen on a news film, trying to shelter the small boy from the bullets before the helicopter blew them both to pieces. Do you know, he said, that until this moment I believed I had murdered my mother? Why did you murder her? said Julia, almost asleep. I didn't murder her. Not physically. In the dream he had remembered his last glimpse of his mother, and within a few moments of waking the cluster of small events surrounding it had all come back. It was a memory that he must have deliberately pushed out of his consciousness over many years. He was not certain of the date, but he could not have been less than ten years old, possibly twelve, when it had happened. His father had disappeared some time earlier, how much earlier he could not remember. He remembered better the rackety, uneasy circumstances of the time, the periodical panics about air raids in the sheltering and tube stations, the piles of rubble everywhere, the unintelligible proclamations posted at street corners, the gangs of youth in shirts all the same color, the enormous queues outside the bakeries, the intermittent machine gun fire in the distance, above all, the fact that there was never enough to eat. He remembered long afternoons spent with other boys in scrounging round dustbins and rubbish heaps, picking out the ribs of cabbage leaves, potato peelings, sometimes even scraps of stale bread crust, from which they carefully scraped away the cinders, and also in waiting for the passing of trucks which traveled over a certain route and were known to carry cattle feed, and which, when they jolted over the bad patches in the road, sometimes spilt a few fragments of oil cake. When his father disappeared, his mother did not show any surprise or any violent grief, but a sudden change came over her. She seemed to have been completely spiritless. It was evident even to Winston that she was waiting for something that she knew must happen. She did everything that was needed, cooked, washed, mended, made the bed, swept the floor, dusted the mantelpiece, always very slowly and with a curious lack of superfluous motion, like an artist's lay figure moving of its own accord. Her large, shapely body seemed to relapse naturally into stillness. For hours at a time, she would sit almost immobile on the bed, nursing his young sister, a tiny, ailing, very silent child of two or three, with a face made simian by thinness. Very occasionally, she would take Winston in her arms and press him against her for a long time without saying anything. He was aware, in spite of his youthfulness and selfishness, that this was somehow connected with the never-mentioned thing that was about to happen. He remembered the room where they lived, a dark, close-smelling room that seemed half-filled by a bed with a white counterpane. There was a gas ring in the fender, and a shelf where food was kept, and on the landing outside there was a brown earthenware sink, common to several rooms. He remembered his mother's statuesque body bending over the gas ring to stir at something in a saucepan. Above all, he remembered his continuous hunger and the fierce, sordid battles at mealtimes. He would ask his mother naggingly over and over again why there was not more food. He would shout and storm at her. He even remembered the tones of his voice, which was beginning to break prematurely and sometimes boomed in a peculiar way. Or he would attempt a sniveling note of pathos in his efforts to get more than his share. His mother was quite ready to give him more than his share. She took it for granted that he, the boy, should have the biggest portion, but however much she gave him, he invariably demanded more. At every meal, she would beseech him not to be selfish, and to remember that his little sister was sick and also needed food, but it was no use. He would cry out with rage when she stopped ladling. He would try to wrench the saucepan and spoon out of her hands. He would grab bits from his sister's plate. He knew that he was starving the other two, but he could not help it. He even felt that he had a right to do it. The clamorous hunger in his belly seemed to justify him. Between meals, if his mother did not stand guard, he was constantly pilfering at the wretched store of food on the shelf. One day, a chocolate ration was issued. There had been no such issue for weeks or months past. He remembered quite clearly that precious little morsel of chocolate. It was a two-ounce slab, 
They still talked about ounces in those days, between the three of them. It was obvious that it ought to be divided into three equal parts. Suddenly, as though he were listening to somebody else, Winston heard himself demanding in a loud, booming voice that he should be given the whole piece. His mother told him not to be greedy. There was a long, nagging argument that went round and round with shouts, whines, tears, remonstrances, bargainings. His tiny sister, clinging to her mother with both hands, exactly like a baby monkey, sat looking over her shoulder at him with large, mournful eyes. In the end, his mother broke off three quarters of the chocolate and gave it to Winston, giving the other quarter to his sister. The little girl took hold of it and looked at it dully, perhaps not knowing what it was. Winston stood watching her for a moment, then with a sudden swift spring he had snatched the piece of chocolate out of his sister's hand and was fleeing for the door. Winston! Winston! his mother called after him. Come back! Give your sister back her chocolate! He stopped, but did not come back. His mother's anxious eyes were fixed on his face. Even now he was thinking about the thing. He did not know what it was that was on the point of happening. His sister, conscious of having been robbed of something, had set up a feeble wail. His mother drew her arm round the child and pressed its face against her breast. Something in the gesture told him that his sister was dying. He turned and fled down the stairs, with the chocolate growing sticky in his hand. He never saw his mother again. After he had devoured the chocolate, he felt somewhat ashamed of himself and hung about in the streets for several hours until hunger drove him home. When he came back, his mother had disappeared. This was already becoming normal at that time. Nothing was gone from the room except his mother and his sister. They had not taken any clothes, not even his mother's overcoat. To this day, he did not know with any certainty that his mother was dead. It was perfectly possible that she had been merely sent to a forced labor camp. As for his sister, she might have been removed, like Winston himself, to one of the colonies for homeless children, reclamation centers they were called, which had grown up as a result of the Civil War, or she might have been sent to the labor camp along with his mother, or simply left somewhere or other to die. Hmm. That's a bit... <clears throat> sad? Well, besides from the sad, it's like... You know how we've been questioning whether this is due to external forces or whether it's an internal thing? Yeah. The brutality with which... And, and this is something that isn't unlike what happens in certain... I mean, not to this uh, obvious extent. But yeah, populations are left to starve. And then when they can't look after their kids anymore, they're distributed elsewhere. And, um, and do you do you blame him for his behavior? His behavior. I mean, he was starving. He was. A, and a, I, I wonder if you know it's fair to say that children don't know any better. But he obviously felt ashamed he of knew. his action. He knew to some extent, and he said he's saying it. It's like he knew he was starving the others. He knew he was affecting them badly. But because <laughs> it, when you're starving like that, you you can become quite animalistic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the dream was still vivid in his mind, especially the enveloping, protecting gesture of the arm in which its whole meaning seemed to be contained. His mind went back to another dream of two months ago, exactly as his mother had sat on the dingy white quilted bed with the child clinging to her, so she had sat in the sunken ship, far underneath him and drowning deeper every minute, but still looking up at him through the darkening water. He told Julia the story of his mother's disappearance. Without opening her eyes, she rolled over and settled herself into a more comfortable position. I expect you were a beastly little swine in those days, she said indistinctly. All children are swine. Yes, but the real point of the story. From her breathing, it was evident that she was going off to sleep again. He would have liked to continue talking about his mother. He did not suppose, from what he could remember of her, that she had been an unusual woman, still less an intelligent one, and yet she had possessed a kind of nobility a kind of purity, simply because the standards that she obeyed were private ones. Her feelings were her own, and could not be altered from outside. It would not have occurred to her that an action which is ineffectual thereby becomes meaningless. Mm. If you love somebody, you loved him, and when you had nothing else to give, you still gave him love. When the last of the chocolate was gone, his mother had clasped the child in her arms. It was no use. It changed nothing. It did not produce more chocolate. It did not avert the child's death or her own, but it seemed natural to her to do it. 
The refugee woman in the boat had also covered the little boy with her arm, which was no more use against the bullets than a sheet of paper. The terrible thing that the party had done was to persuade you that mere impulses, mere feelings, were of no account, while at the same time robbing you of all power over the material world. Yeah, so that idea, yeah, it's the destruction of the very essence of humanity. Oh dear. When once you were in the grip of the party, what you felt or did not feel, what you did or refrained from doing, made literally no difference. Whatever happened, you vanished, and neither you nor your actions were ever heard of again. You were lifted clean out of the stream of history. And yet to the people of only two generations ago, this would not have seemed all-important, because they were not attempting to alter history. They were governed by private loyalties which they did not question. What mattered were individual relationships, and a completely helpless gesture, an embrace, a tear, a word spoken to a dying man, could have value in itself. The paroles, it suddenly occurred to him, had remained in this condition. They were not loyal to a party or a country or an idea. They were loyal to one another. For the first time in his life, he did not despise the paroles, but think of them merely as an inert force which would one day spring to life and regenerate the world. The paroles had stayed human. They had not become hardened inside. They had held on to the primitive emotions which he himself had to relearn by conscious effort. And in thinking this, he remembered, without apparent relevance, how a few weeks ago he had seen a severed hand lying on the pavement and had kicked it into the gutter, as though it had been a cabin stock. The proles are human beings, he said aloud. We are not human. Why not, said Julia, who had woken up again. He thought for a little while. Has it ever occurred to you, he said, that the best thing for us to do would be simply to walk out of here before it's too late and never see each other again? Yes, dear, it has occurred to me several times, but I'm not going to do it, all the same. We've been lucky, he said, but it can't last much longer. You're young. You look normal and innocent. If you keep clear of people like me, you might stay alive for another fifty years. No, I've thought it all out. What you do, I'm going to do. And don't be too downhearted. I'm rather good at staying alive. We may be together for another six months, a year. There's no knowing. At the end, we're certain to be apart. Do you realize how utterly alone we shall be? When once they get hold of us, there will be nothing, literally nothing, that either of us can do for the other. If I confess, they'll shoot you, and if I refuse to confess, they'll shoot you just the same. Nothing that I can do or say, or stop myself from saying, will put off your death for as much as five minutes. Neither of us will even know whether the other is alive or dead. We shall be utterly without power of any kind. The one thing that matters is that we shouldn't betray one another although even that can't make the slightest difference. If you mean confessing, she said, we shall do that right enough. Everybody always confesses. You can't help it. They torture you. I don't mean confessing. Confession is not betrayal. What you say or do doesn't matter. Only feelings matter. If they could make me stop loving you, that would be the real betrayal. She thought it over. They can't do that, she said finally. It's the one thing they can't do. They can make you say anything, anything but they can't make you believe it they can't get inside you no he said a little more hopefully no that's quite true they mm. can't get inside you yet <laughs> <laughs> party pooper <laughs> yeah i don't trust um, this whole thing yeah if you can feel that staying human is worthwhile even when it can't have any result whatsoever you've beaten them he thought of the telescreen with its never sleeping ear they could spy upon you night and day, but if you kept your head, you could still outwit them. With all their cleverness, they had never mastered the secret of finding out what another human being was thinking. Perhaps that was less true when you were actually in their hands. One did not know what happened inside the Ministry of Love, but it was possible to guess. Tortures, drugs, delicate instruments that registered your nervous reactions, gradual wearing down by sleeplessness and solitude and persistent questioning. Facts, at any rate, could not be kept hidden. They could be tracked down by inquiry. They could be squeezed out of you by torture. But if the object was not to stay alive, but to stay human, what difference did it ultimately make? They could not alter your feelings. For that matter, you could not alter them yourself, even if you wanted to. They could lay bare in the utmost detail everything that you had done or said or thought, but the inner heart, whose workings were mysterious even to yourself, remained impregnable. Mm. And there we go. So yeah, it's it's interesting, and I, I've always had that 
I don't know if I've said it before, but that feeling that the proles are the population that are not as easily... I mean, they are influenced by the party because they are... Um, they, the media is controlled. They play the lottery. All the songs are written for them. All the, all the pornography is written for yeah. them, yeah. Everything is done to distract and... <coughs> excuse me. Distract and keep them occupied. And all their jobs are like mining or working in the cafeterias, you know, manual labor. Yeah, they they don't allow them to see the inner workings. So oh, and rocket bombs are rained on them all the time. Oh, yeah, that too. Control them. Oh, unpleasant. But yeah, the, that humanity is still there. What do you think of that idea where he's like, you know, even if we're captured, they can't change what we're feeling inside. We no. can't betray each other. I think, yes. But... They are just relearning that human ability. It's still very, very fresh. So it's going to like torture affects emotional states. Yes. Um, it might not change like what they truly believe, but they're going. They can train them to be to feel aversion. Well, isn't there that thing where the reason torture is so ineffectual is because the person being tortured will say whatever he thinks the torturer wants well, to hear yeah. to get them to stop? That's that's the main reason torture is not useful, and that's why forced confessions are also not useful and all these things. But it, it I don't know. I'm sure that they they could figure out a way to create the, make them feel aversion as opposed to attraction towards each other so okay like there's there's ways of uh, not effective ways but i mean if you tortured a person any association with the other person is the connection for that torture oh yeah yeah like stimulus yeah so i mean it's not going to be fantastic <laughs> or necessarily if, i mean every I time i show you a picture of julia i'm going to stab you <laughs> yeah yeah, so it's not necessarily going to be, um, how do you put it? It's not necessarily going to be effective with everyone, but, excuse me, <laughs> but it can absolutely be something. I could see them doing it. Like, I, I wouldn't put it past the party. It sounds like something they do. Okay. Sorry, I'm like, little gross. No. And let's see. So, first chapter we read... O'Brien, whom I think we've commented enough on that. But the second one, the flashback to his mother. And the yeah, other. the flashback. So it really shows you the setting in which the population was essentially forced to accept. Um, I don't know how much choice was involved in this. Yeah, it. it I. it's one of those things that I never want to confront the idea that, you know, if if I was desperate enough that I could lose my humanity, you know, what I value. Like when, you know, Winston was yeah. so hungry, he was, oh, well, he was also a child. So yeah. that, that that's a stronger um, emotion. He doesn't have the either the life yes. experience or well, the uh, emotional maturity. His entire life has been not given an opportunity to really develop those skills. But But it does scare me that idea that if, you know, if I got hungry enough or uh, destitute enough that I could turn against my values just to survive. Yeah, that's the part that, that no one really wants to confront. Not good. Sorry. And on that note... <laughs> <laughs> okay, well... It's, it's been um, a harrowing uh, discussion today. Yeah, I, I mean, th this has never been a positive book. No, it was a fairly intense one. Uh, maybe everyone, anyone who's getting pulled down and depressed by this book, go go look at some puppies. Go hug a puppy if go you go hug have. a puppy if you've got a one. If you don't, look at some puppy videos. And we are about um, we're just over halfway through the book now. Yay! <laughs> Can't stop yawning. Um, so th think of all that's happened, and we're halfway. So we we've reached the apex now, and the now rest is going to be. <laughs> I don't trust O'Brien. He just just gives me a very bad impression because he's an inner party member, and he know he has no fear of those screens, which means he knows exactly what he's doing. So so let me ask you that. Usually in um, 
narrative theory, the middle of a story is when the story changes and can't go back to the way it was. So I have two thoughts to what that point might be. It's either uh, Winston and Juliet throwing caution into the wind and thinking that Charrington's room is now a refuge from their world and becoming... Well, they already think that. We found that out from the last... yeah. Or it's Winston meeting O'Brien thinking, oh, he's my he's my uh, liaison to the resistance and maybe I can finally yeah, have I a difference. Yeah, I think he's going to put his guard down with O'Brien and that's going to be the final I don't know, nail in the coffin. And isn't it interesting how to Winston the the kind of the sign that this was something more was he referenced Syme, a person who no longer well, exists. He referenced to- him, but... You know, the other question is also: Sime never trusted Winston. Remember? Yeah, he, but he, he was had, a party zealot, so he would be um, he yeah. would be untrustful of anybody. Yeah, but the fact that he's an unperson means that he's gone through torture and whatever. Oh, you think he might have said he that Winston? Said, yeah. I, I I don't trust him. You should look into him. Yeah. 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 And possibly. because they know he's a zealot, they don't have a reason to doubt him. Hmm. Well, that could very much be. So O'Brien's like, I'm I'm going to test Winston there. Yeah. Yeah. So Simon would have been constantly watching him like a hawk anyway. And then when he's anywhere on his way out, might as well be use, of use to the party. Like he himself, I think Simon himself kind of on some level knew that he wasn't going to last long because his kind of knowledge is, you know, th- there's a certain amount of knowledge that is good for the party but then the people who've created it they have knowledge of the previous speak so they need to be removed he was um he was probably the most dangerous type of person at least for this party he was smart without humility yeah never say so when you go around bragging about your accomplishments yeah but the fact that he understood why the party was doing it and he loved it yeah, he had, he loved it. He was he was pro this. Um, the eradication of language. But he was not an inner party member. No, it was not his place. Which was, an- another class, uh, another classist idea. Which it yeah. didn't matter how much he he loved the party or believed he was not the right class. Yeah. So there's a lot of um, he, and the fact that the so that's why it's think that he knows how the party works he understands how the party works he shouldn't know actually as much as he does about how the party works but he does and because of that he would have wanted to leave a legacy for the party in which they dubbed a Winston which makes sense or it could just be um, they interacted therefore must look into it maybe interaction but no I'm thinking with maybe that's a thing where everybody kind of looks as, at people who are good at their job and have that idea in that society oh they can't last long yeah but he's i think also the the fact that he was uh, that winston is using like i don't know how much of him telling him oh you don't have the the 10th edition well i've got a copy you can have a look how much of that was trying to figure out if he did have a copy of the 10th edition because he was not supposed to yeah like how 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 much had also how much had Symes let out? How much info has he shared? He was using words that are no longer in circulation, right? Mm. Um, but they are because the edition isn't out yet. Yeah. So how would he know? Yeah. So it was it was a trap. It was like it was definitely a trap. Which went navigated because I think on some some level he didn't really understand what was going on. It was only once. Yeah. Uh, well. Or he got the wrong idea about what was going on. That's more yeah, to the point. Yeah, he got totally the wrong idea. But um, the idea of, I think because they would have heard the conversation between him and Simes. So in other words, you knew that those words don't exist, but you still use them or the won't won't exist and you still use them. Well, because he doesn't have the dictionary yet. Yeah, exactly. So it was a case of, well, technically you knew and therefore why didn't you apply that knowledge? And he's like, well, no, because it was not my... Maybe he's actually getting into trouble because of... Anyway, that's part of the whole... He's in trouble anyway because he's, <laughs> he's doing weird from, stuff. From the first sentence of the first chapter, he was in trouble. Yeah, we we already knew that there were issues. Uh, and there's no way they wouldn't have noticed. Little things like 
his interaction with the the fitness lady. <laughs> you know, I sometimes think of that interaction every now and then, especially when I'm doing yoga. Well, the fact that she disappeared. Well, we haven't mentioned her because. Well, I'd say she got replaced. All right. I can't remember, but I think she got replaced. We, the The book hasn't mentioned the morning fitness aside in passing. That's true, but technically she should be replaced. Just because you don't like her. Well, no, because she she was presuming to know what the party wants or do, does or doesn't. Nah. That's not a. Anyway. See, so. and this this is the problem. What in this society? It's you know anything could be a pretext for yeah getting rid get of her, getting rid of you. It's very disturbing. So on yeah. that note, yeah. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter if you'd like to uh, send me a message at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. And I'm Rue McMoo, R-O-O-M-C-M-O-O on, on Twitter at least. And our podcast is SMBSLT Podcast, both on Twitter and Facebook. Yep, yep. Uh, so uh, at the top of the podcast, the music was Ministry of Love by The Eurythmics. At the end, it's an excerpt of I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. So next week, we'll probably be back to one chapter again. And I want to apologize for getting people's hopes up. I thought these chapters would have um, contained what happened in Hate Week, but obviously that's the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then things just get more crazy from there. Yay! So. Until next time, I've been Dave. And I've been Rue. Happy reading, everybody. Enjoy.